The Marvel Handbook, Episode A, 7, Arcturians, Arnim Zola, Asgardians, and Asgard, Home of the Norse Gods. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Derek WC from History of Comics on Film and Fanholes Podcast, talking about the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Circle with this woman, I end up marrying. I said, You know, I love you. You know, I love you, girl. But you're losing your mind. Then again, she's always been that way. I can never trust her, you know? The Octurians are a alien race from Marvel Comics that originated in the Milky Way galaxy who live on the planet Octurus 4. They were first introduced in an issue of Adventures into Fear, issue number 23. It's listed in the handbook as Fear, issue number 23, because the title was originally called Fear for the first, I don't know, nine issues or so, and then it got renamed into Adventures into Fear. And at this point, Adventures into Fear 23, the headlining character, the headlining strip was Morbius, the Living Vampire, written by Steve Gerber. Long story short, Morbius is transported to the planet Octurus 4 by this cat demon named Balkatar. He escapes and runs into what are considered the barbarians of the planet, and these are your average-looking human beings. However, there is a age-old war over the morality of genetic engineering, and this actually destroyed an ages-old society on Octurus IV. This created an artificial race of nearly immortal mutations who have no instinct for self-preservation. The listing in the Marvel Handbook is more representative of either the human barbarians or, I guess, the most famous Octarians, which would be Alita and Starhawk from the Guardians of the Galaxy. The typical Octarians all are more of, I think when Morbius first encounters them, he refers to them as freaks, and the Octarian he befriends, who looks kind of like a cross between the Clock King and the Orb from Ghost Rider. So, I guess, imagine, like, the Clock King 
Kong's outfit where he's got the little clock face and the cape and everything. But instead of a clock face on the little mask, it's actually like a big giant eyeball. Every Octurian that you end up seeing these, I guess, mutations, they're all very individualistic. You know, this is something that is coming probably from the psychosedelic experiences of Steve Gerber's psychosynapses. Like, they've got various different characters that look like blobs or have different weird tendrils for mouths or they're green or they look like gigantic pimples or whatever. And there's even a carryover into the origin of Starhawk where there's a lady who has these weird tentacles or tendrils for hands and she looks human except for the fact that she's got these strange hands and everything. This Octarian that befriends Morbius, even in the handbook, it makes mention of the idea that the Octarians don't have interstellar space travel. But that also seems to be erroneous because by the end of it, this eyeballed Octarian decides he's going to help Morbius get back to the planet Earth because he was transported away from Earth by his nemesis, this cat demon guy. He agrees to help him find a spaceship from the ages of old. So at some point, Octurus IV had space travel, and clearly this mutation is smart enough. He's not a barbarian. He's smart enough to pilot it and take it to Earth. Of course, they crash land. The Octurian eyeball guy who befriends Morbius dies, and he goes off and fights Blade on Earth, and that's the end of Octurus IV, at least for that moment. And then it later returns in the origin of Starhawk. They get into more detail, I guess, because Gerber was fascinated with this notion. Starhawk looks human. He's born out of this test tube, and the Octurans that are these mutations, when they see one of their own that looks like a human being, they tend to think of it as the freak. The barbarians, by this point in the future, are known as the Reavers of Octurus, still violent, attack and kill and all that kind of stuff. The only reason why Starhawk is left alive is because he looks like a regular human. He looks like a barbarian, whereas the woman with the tendrils and the antennas and all that kind of stuff, she gets killed. Then he meets his adopted sister, which is Alita. She's also from Octurus and is part of the barbarians, the Reavers, the future of that group. And they have their own, the Hawk God, and they get merged together. And it's this kind of weird thing where they kind of have a Captain Marvel type situation, like with Rick Jones and the Nega Bands, where Alita is there, and then she'll have to swap places, and then her body transforms into Starhawk. That's the long and short of the fame, the infamy of Octurus and Octurus IV. I think the listing itself, the human being, pink, white, humanoid, as they describe it in the Marvel handbook, I would say that's probably supposed to be representative of Stakar, of Starhawk. But uh, Starhawk, it's weird. He looks like a standard human, but he's really not. I guess if you didn't know any better, that just by looking at the figure here, that they're just standard humanoids on another planet in the Milky Way. Of course, I think later they have a note where it says, at present, half of the Octurian population is severely mutated due to a combination of biochemical advancement and reactions to radioactive fallout. If this listing wasn't so compressed in a little tiny box in the upper right-hand corner, you'd think it might be better to have had a listing where there wasn't just one figure. Maybe they could have done a group of figures. I think the most iconic is probably the eyeball Octurin and the female 
nocturne that has antennas and tendrils for hands and everything. And you could kind of establish, well, here are the mutates on Octurus 4, and then here are the standard barbarians who end up becoming the Reavers in the Guardians of the Galaxy timeline. The Death's Head Virus. The retrovirus was initially developed by the Nazi biochemist Arnim Zola. It was going to be Hitler's doomsday weapon. Remnants of the virus bonded with Strucker's DNA. It's in his cells. Theoretically, it could still be liberated. Okay, what would it take for Heiner to reproduce the virus? It would take Dr. Arnim Zola. He's still alive. Yeah. He did 30 years in Spandau prison, and when he got out, he disappeared. Until six weeks ago. Interpol got a whisper on his location, passed it along to us. So it's safe to say every Hydra agent in the phone book is out looking for him. We have him in a shield safe house in Berlin. Ah, Dr. Zola. You are holding me illegally. What do you know about the Death's Head virus? Death's Head is the perfect weapon, you know. When was Hydra last in contact with you? How long would it take to reproduce the RNA sequence from Von Strucker's body? Reproduction of the virus would take me mere hours. When was Hydra last in contact with you? That would be telling, wouldn't it, Colonel? Are you ready to scan him, Kate? I have never seen anything so evil. Hi, this is Ryan Daly, the host of several shows on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Arnim Zola is, by a pretty healthy margin, my favorite Captain America villain. Now, even having said that, I don't necessarily think of him as just a Captain America villain because he's not necessarily tied down to an ideology the way the Red Skull is or Crossbones or Flag Smasher. He's not really a political villain. He is much more in that Jack Kirby 70s realm of just being a weirdo. He's a biogeneticist. He was originally called the biofanatic. He just makes monsters and things like that. I see him as really a utility villain, or at least having the potential to be so. And that probably stems from the fact that the first time I saw this character was not in a Captain America comic. I was racking my brain, but this just came to me. My first experience with Arnim Zola was in an Avengers annual number 13. This issue was during the Stern run after Bruce Banner, the Incredible Hulk, had merged with the Hulk and become Smart Hulk. He had been pardoned by the government. He had created this gamma-based laboratory and everything, but everything went bad. In issue 300 of the Incredible Hulk, he ended up being like exiled on, into a different dimension. The Avengers go to his lab to check it out, and Reed Richards, Hank Pym, Hank McCoy, and a bunch of other notable scientists are there, and they all get attacked by these monsters that just like the Hulk. Of course, they're not as strong, they're easily defeated, and it turns out that there are these sort of like synthesoid monsters created by Arnim Zola. Because he is a mad scientist genius who creates a lot of monsters, in particular the Doughboy thing, which is just this sort of like mucky thing, you hear that description, you don't think Captain America. So he could be an Avengers villain, he could be a Hank Pym villain, he could be an Iron Man villain, all these different things. But as he is noticed as a Captain America villain, he is really one of my favorites. He's just classic Kirby in the 70s weirdness. To describe his physical feature, he's got a large, hulking, what would be muscular body, except he's got like a baggy, poofy sleeve shirt. But the obvious visual distinction is that his head doesn't look like a head. His head looks like a security camera or something, and his face is on a TV screen in his chest. It is bizarre looking. I gotta think the only reason this is not considered the weirdest look in all of Marvel Comics is because of MODOK. If you didn't have MODOK going to the very far extreme, this would be the weirdo. This would 
be the guy that everybody thinks of, but I think Arnim Zola may unfortunately be forgotten in a lot of ways because of Modoc. But I just love this look, and I love the fact that he did this to himself. He created this body to house his personality when he was dying. I think that this made him superior, and he could be immortal in this body. It reminds me a little bit of the DC supervillain, the Ultra Humanite, who famously put his brain into a woman or an Amazon woman or a super gorilla and everything. It's kind of one of those things that you could have anybody you want and you choose this thing. One of those aspects of comic book mad scientists that I love. His first appearance, which was when Jack Kirby came back to Captain America and the Falcon in the 70s. A more recent storyline that I really, really dug was the Dimension Z story during the Rick Remender and John Romita Jr. Captain America run. Well, it was about 10 years ago now. It's a fun character that I've always loved purely based on the visual. Everything that I love about weird mad scientists and Marvel villains. I've managed to miss pretty much every significant Arlen Zola appearance because he <laughs> wasn't featured in the Sin of Liberty Fireside Edition, which was my early primer of Captain America material. He wasn't around much during the Mark Grunewald run. I think he might have been in one random Kirby return issue from the 70s. My recollection is I think the closing splash on one issue may have been his debut. I might have very well had his first appearance for all I know. I bought the official handbook of the Marvel Universe Deluxe Edition number one, so I know I saw him there. And that exposure was another reinforcement. When I was a kid and the time I grew up, Jack Kirby was a figure to be mocked. And it was this weird thing where it's like, geez, Kirby's already doing that weird stuff. And I didn't really think much of Zarnum Zola for years. And then as I got older and as I began to appreciate the sublime silliness of comics, I really came <laughs> around on Zola. I loved his presence in the Captain America movies, especially the Winter Soldier. It's one of my favorite moments of any Marvel movie, the Arnim Zola review oh, on absolutely. Netflix. But honestly, I've really rarely read. I know I've encountered him here and there, but no major stories, none of the ones that would really make me a fan. I'm one of those platonic fans of Arnim Zola. I like the idea of reading an Arnim Zola story, especially one with Captain America, although I agree with you that I think he could be a Marvel utility villain as well. But in my own personal reading, mm-hmm. my own personal experience, I just don't have a lot to say about the character besides he looks great. I love the artwork in his entry. It kind of looks more like Keith Giffen doing Jack Kirby to me than Kirby himself. But I love how crazy his outfit is, how it doesn't make any sort of fashion sense. And it, it, <laughs> it really betrays the madness of this character. You know he's a villain because no normal person would look like that or dress like that. Exactly. I bet you probably did see his first appearance because it was Captain America issue 208. Kirby had been back for about 10 issues, I think, at that point. It was the splash page at the very end of issue 208 and then 209, his real sort of debut. And that was probably um, the earliest single issue of Captain America I ever owned. Wow. In the Dimension Z run, that got kind of dark. Steve Rogers got trapped in this other dimension that was dystopian Age of Apocalypse style of thing, except it was all run by Arnim Zola. And Steve was trapped there for years, years, and had a kid that he was raising and everything. You see what Zola did with his own family and everything. I highly recommend that story arc. Um, After that, I zoned out of Remender's run before he finished it. But that introductory arc was really, really good story arc for this particular villain. It is one of those things, it's all about the visuals. If you fall in love with the zaniness of comics, like you said, you can't help but look at this guy and just go, yeah, I want to see more of this thing. This is so weird. I was wincing as you were talking about the Trapped in Dimension C story arc, because when you said it's been about a decade, I realized, oh my god, it's already been a decade since that came out. I thought that was the most recent relaunch of Cap, right? And oh, I think it was that was like the first all-new Marvel Now thing. That was like right around the time that DC was doing the New 52, and that was like, that was eight years ago. Yeah. But it also occurred to me that at the time Remender was taking over Captain America, I actively avoided his work. I had read some of it here and there, and I always felt like he was 
was one of those frustrated screenwriters that was just writing in comics until that Hollywood check came in. And yeah. in the time since then, I've read some of his books that are some of my favorites of recent years. He's a writer that I'll actually go out of my way to pick up books from now. So I probably should go back and read that book. I've always wanted to see John Romita Jr. handle Captain America over a long period of time. And because of Remember, I avoided it at the time. And now you're just making me think I really need to go back and check those issues out. If nothing else, maybe I can finally get at least one definitive Arnim Zola story under my belt. Yeah, again, I didn't finish Remender's run. We kind of talked about that before, and you've sort of mentioned that a lot of writers maybe have one or two good Captain America stories in there under the belt and really shouldn't last much longer than that. I think historically there might be some validation for that, and maybe that was the case for him because I think his first year was really, really good, and that the story arc that followed that, I was just kind of like, I'm not caring about that. The way they were able to integrate him into the Captain America movies, in particular the Winter Soldier after the character has been dead, but bringing him back so it's just Toby Jones's face on a green screen, like ancient computer face monitor screen with the camera above him for being a grounded Marvel movie at that time. One of the most grounded Marvel movies. And really, like in 2014, they hadn't really introduced a lot of craziness. So to have it in that fixture with just that little homage to how crazy he looks. Magnifique. That was so good. I was so happy with just that little touch. Like he even made a point of noting that he's not German. He's Swiss. I was like, that's true to the character. My recollection is the Russos came out later on and said they actually wanted to have a robot body detached from that screen, the camera and everything, and walk out of the building. And I'm really glad they didn't do that because as much as I want to see that on screen, I think it would have broken the movie. I think that mm. it was a very precarious balance to get that whole spy thriller thing into a superhero movie and balance it out so that you felt like this is actually a Robert Redwood movie. This isn't just a Captain America movie, but there's still a part of me that is going to feel regret regardless. Aesthetically, it, it would have been very challenging for people, but God, it would have been divine to see that. <laughs> yeah, there's a maybe, maybe in the future. Yeah. In ancient times, people believed the heavens were filled with gods and monsters and magical worlds. Then, as time passed, those beliefs faded into myth and folklore. But now we know the stories were true. Other worlds with names like Asgard do exist, and beings once revered as gods like Thor have returned, leaving us with more questions. So, Asgardians are aliens from another planet that visited us thousands of years ago. Or more. And because we couldn't understand aliens, we thought they were gods. That's where our Norse mythology comes from. It's too crazy. Hey, everybody. This is Jay from the Negro Justice League. I'm going to be discussing the Asgardians with you today. If you ever want to take a look at our podcast with my co-host, Jerry, please look for us at the negrojusticeleague.com or you can even watch us on Twitch at Black Nerdcast, twitch.tv slash Black Nerdcast. So like I said, we're going to talk about the Asgardians today. They are one of my favorite Marvel groups in the last recent years, especially with some of the more amazing Thor series that have happened and some of the more recent storylines, especially the God Butcher and things like that. But we're talking about the Asgardians back in the day. This is the 83 handbook where a lot of these stories were some of the stories that created the legend of Thor for Marvel comic book characters. For those who maybe don't know the Asgardians or don't know the Asgardians in the comic book format, 
they were considered the gods of Asgard that most of us may know from like mythology back in the day. So these weren't considered super advanced science beings like they kind of are seen in the Marvel series now. These were actually considered at that time like the gods of Asgard that we know in our history. Very powerful, human-like. They were a little bit different than maybe some of the other gods that were seen in Marvel series because they were not completely immortal. They lived long lives. They could be considered immortal to humans because they lived for such long, but they actually were able to die. They actually did age. One of the things that they kept from the mythology was that they did need to be able to ingest these apples from the goddess of immortality, Idun. I hope I'm saying her name right, who basically had these apples that were given to the gods to allow them to continue being vibrant and vital and be able to live such long lives. So speaking on the 83 handbook of the Asgardians, they only were given per page and it was a group shot to show you the main Asgardians in the comic books during that time. The first ones, of course, were Thor, Odin and Loki. I'm going to be honest with you. I have never been a fan of winged helmet Thor. And this is him during his greatest era of winged helmet Thor with the sleeveless uniform and the big flowing Farrah Fawcett looking hair at times. The wings don't even look like they're metal. They actually look like they're bird wings. And they basically have him showing how he first appeared in Journey into Mystery. Then you have Odin who... I don't know if more people know Odin nowadays from his comic book counterparts. He hasn't really been in the series as much lately. But during that time, he was very much appeared. He was very much Odin, Allfather, the Mighty God. And then you had Loki, of course, whose costume really hasn't changed too much. In a lot of ways, he still has his very symbolic, long, curved horn helmet. This is also very much an evil Loki. This would have been the Loki that helped create the Avengers. This would have been the Loki that... That trapped Thor and kept him in his Donald Blake persona for a while in the comic books. This is definitely the god of mischief, Loki, not so much the god of story or the god of wanting to be a hero, Loki, that we see nowadays. The one character in here, though, that I really like from the handbook, because I haven't seen them before, was Carnilla. Now, in the Asgardians part of the handbook, they tell you how Carnilla is the queen of the norms. For those who don't know who the norms are, those are considered the fates. Almost every mythology during that time has some story about the fates or the maiden, the crone, the maid or the matron. You know, the story of the three women who are able to know someone's present, past and future and can even cut the ties to their fate. I'd never known about Carnilla until actually being able to see her recently in the series, not the last Thor series that came out where he is now the all father, spoiler, sorry. But the last one where they actually introduced her back into the comic books, and I don't think she's actually appeared for almost a decade. So it's really interesting to see that she was one of the original Asgardians, because I only thought she was a newer aspect to the mythos for the Marvel comics, just maybe in the last decade. When I was looking at these Asgardian handbooks from that time, so many of these Asgardians have been part of the story forever. You can't have an Asgardian story without Thor, Odin, and Loki, obviously. Heimdall is only 
most usually seen, even if for a little bit, because they always try to introduce the Bifrost, and he's the protector of the Bifrost. Sif is usually in the stories, the Warriors 3, but there's so many characters from here, not only how they appear, that I wouldn't have known about without looking at these things. One of the guys that they also have in here is Hermod, and he's supposed to be the god of speed, which totally makes sense to me, because when you think about Greek mythology, there's a god of speed. But I never even knew that there was a certain god of speed in Asgordian mythology or that he was even used in the comic book. And again, he was one of the first Asgardians. I would love to see a story with him now. I would love to be able to see how he would be used. It's actually making me wish that a lot of these characters would be introduced in maybe an Asgardian comic book itself. I feel like if they would have known what the Asgardians would mean to the Marvel Universe as a whole, not just, of course, in the movies, but the comic books even now, maybe they would deserve two pages. <laughs> a lot of these shots, speaking of that Bronze Age, it reminds me a lot of people writing the Conans back then. This gives me a very big Conan barbarian resemblance. A lot of the male character faces themselves seem very similar in a lot of ways. It's almost like it really is just a profile picture to say, hey, there are these beings called as guardians. You probably know Thor. Here's a bunch of the other ones. You may see them. You may not. Let's move on. What I do love, though, is the uniqueness of the helmet that they seem to have in this. Even though, and I'll stand by it, I'm not a fan of winged helmet Thor, you can't deny that from a artistic standpoint. If I was reading the comics back in the series and I could only be able to see characters in the background or shadows, you'd be able to see who those characters are. And I think that's a very strong point. When I was talking about Hemrod earlier, his helmet, I don't even know how to explain it other than it looks like he wore a bottle cap as his headgear. And again, it's similar to Hela's where it is so big, it's not even in the full frame of the picture. So I can't even imagine if there's more going on. There's Sigmund. I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly. She was supposed to be the goddess of fidelity. And her helmet almost looks like if she had hair, I'm assuming it's somehow stuck in her helmet and it's turned into wings like a bat. Absolutely insane to think about. I doubt they would even use some of these character designs for helmets outside of maybe Hela's for the horns because they're too, a little bit too ridiculous. But back in the 70s, that was the fantastical look. You wanted it to look otherworldly. These are supposed to be regular uniforms for them, regular clothing for them, but it's so godly, it's so otherworldly that it just looks absolutely alien in a way to what normal people would be looking at. If I were to meet a god and I saw somebody wearing anything like Hela or Hermund or even Loki with these ridiculous horns, you would question them. The other thing I do like about the Asgardians entry into it is how they make sure to tie this to, even though they're considered gods, they don't look for worshippers. I like the idea that in this series, and I'm sure Marvel had reasons for doing it, they did let them know these were the gods from back in the day, but they don't need worshippers right now. They're kind of doing their own thing. They dwell in an extra-dimensional realm, which I've always thought is a really cool way of introducing how Asgard and Midgard and all of these can be in the same space, but somehow you can't see them. I like the idea of using, even in the 70s, the idea of extra-dimensional, separate plane type situations. I think even in the more recent comics, they still use the idea of how Asgard and all of these places actually share the same area because of Yggdrasil, but the vibrancy frequencies are just different enough to all the spaces can be shared. I like how 
with the Asgardians, even though nowadays they would be called aliens, they just showed them that it was otherworldly. Not only just the inclusivity, but how it works for the world of Marvel. The idea that they're going to be gods, the aliens, mutants, all of these superheroes. And how do people not recognize these beings have been around for years? Because if I remember correctly, when Thor was first introduced into the Marvel series, which would have been Journey into Mystery, everybody was like, Thor, the god from mythology? Oh, that's not really him. That's someone playing like he's Thor. So even in that time, they had this idea that this is someone who's just using this idea because how else would we not have seen you for decades, centuries, millenniums before now? The one thing that this handbook really makes me wish to see more of, especially in the newer series of Thor, which does look like it's trying to tap into that, hopefully, is as Guardian as a whole should definitely feel more complex in this world. I don't know if it was the Jason run, but there was a run when the Asgardian gods were basically all living in Oklahoma. And I love that series. I love that whole idea of being able to see gods on Earth and dealing with those and meeting new gods. And looking at the gods now from the handbook, I would like to see more of that. I would like to see the actual god of thunder, the actual god of the hunt, the actual god of speed. I would like to see, other than just Thor being the god of thunder and easily being able to see that, the gods in their elements, if that makes sense. Sif has always been known as the warrior princess of them, but she's supposed to be the goddess of the hunt. I would like to be able to see that. I would like to be able to see more of the Warriors 3. I know Volstagg right now is in the comic book, but he's really more as a always a secondary character towards more bureaucratic aspects of it nowadays. But he's the god of girth. Fendril was the lord of the sword and seemed like an Errol Flynn type character, which I've always loved. I would love to be able to see them have more availability to be seen in the comic books because it's such an interesting story if done right they've shown that a thor book that has a woman lead or woman center can be popular because we saw that in the jane foster thor i think valkyrie she is currently doing a comic series of and that's getting really good praise so i could see sif having a series i would love to see more stories of the warriors through and why they're so popular i would love to be able to see more slice of life type comics of asgard realm or how Asgardians deal with all the stuff. I would really like to see an Asgardian book that was maybe similar to like a mini series or an event series on Ragnarok. I don't think there has really been one like that in a while and that would be a great, great way I think to be able to give some respect and some more looks to the Asgardian characters especially when you think of how big when the next Thor movie comes out how much that's going to be able to show even more of Asgard which I think is one of the few things that has been missing from the movies. They show a lot of how beautiful Asgard is, but you really don't get to see the Asgardians in that. The Inhumans are very much, it feels like, a mixture of Asgardian and X-Men to me in a lot of ways. And if they were able to do that for the Inhumans, who don't have nearly as many characters of interest as the Asgardians, you could definitely do the Asgardians. Not only is it respectful to the mythology, I think it could be a great selling point, because we all know as comic book fans, they're always going to be some type of this will change the world forever or they will never be the same again. So if we know in the story that Ragnarok is going to happen no matter what because that's the prophecy basically of Asgardians, yeah sure Thor or anybody can always try to prevent it or make it not happen, but it should be something that always
always happens no matter what. And if it's going to happen, I think it should be in a way that introduces the Asgardians and why they're so awesome. Just so if the next team of artists or writers want to do a new story, they have the privilege to. It's almost like the perfect built-in reset button where you can do a lot of retconning. You can do a lot of personal artistic interpretations on things and say, well, it's still Thor. It's just Thor after Ragnarok, which makes sense. Beyond our segment of time and space stands eternal Asgard, the citadel of the Norse gods, which is connected to Earth by the Rainbow Bridge, known as Bifrost. Come on, good Goldilocks. You're not really serious about this Norse god stuff, are you? I mean, you're just another superhero like us, right? And your homeland Asgard, that's just make-believe, like Never Never Land, right? Never Never Land? <laughs> Nay, mortal. And behold, as my enchanted hammer reveals the wonders of the realm eternal, beyond space and time there exists a rainbow bridge. This magical bridge is the only road connecting Earth with fabled Asgard. For the most part, tis a realm of great beauty and joy. But there be many regions of Asgard not so friendly, including the frozen land of the ice giants. Looks like my kind of town. There is also the dreaded Forest of Thorns, where my crafty half-brother Loki, god of evil, broods and plots. Hi, my name is Carolyn Love. I'm a huge comic book fan, both Marvel and DC, and I'm just a nerd working hard to become a voice actor. Unfortunately, it looks like with the the entry, they didn't give you any details. They basically just show oh, you the map. I'm a huge Thor fan. Ah, excellent. It's cool that we have this map in front of us, but how does all this relate to Thor? I'm familiar with Valhalla because that's where Valkyrie comes from. I know Hell is where the goddess Hell comes from. I assume the Nephilim is the ice giants that we're familiar with, but I'm, I'm not sure like some of the other ones. Yeah, there are nine realms, but there are other subworlds within the realms. So it does get a little bit confusing. The whole universe fell through the uh, north eye is called Yggdrasil and stretches wide. I can't tell the rest of it. Yeah. Midgard, well, Earth obviously being in the center of Midgard. And the first world to ever be created in the north, it was called Niflheim. It's just like that place with clouds and shadows and everything. And this certain well called Valkyrie, it had 12 rivers of ice. And it moved down to the south, uh, south of the universe, which was kind of a hot place, which created the second world, Niflheim, which is mostly known for the home of Surtur, that big fiery demon that most of us have seen in the recent movie called Ragnarok. Because of that massive amount of hot and cold coming together, it created this being called Ymir. Ymir was King's original guy for the giant. That's his frost giant, necessarily. He had his pet cow. I can't remember how that came about, but the cow left a bunch of eyes off an unearthed person. I can't remember, but he was the first Asgardian furry, and he married this giant pet called Vesla, and they had three children, Odin, Billy, and Deep. We all know Odin's father four. And then, eventually, the other world Sold out for themselves because Odin and his sibling technically made Asgard as we all know it today. All kinds of shiny, home of the gods, 
But as they grew up, they started to hate the race of giants. I think it was interesting in a video game called God of War. They said that giants aren't necessarily all beings. They are a race of people. They can be just all you and I. I think that's kind of interesting. But Jotunheim is where the frost giants live, and they really do not like the frost giants. But they hate him near the most. Why? I'm not really sure. So Odin and his siblings killed the king of the giants, Ymir. And your hair actually formed Midgard. His bones were the mountains, his hair were the trees, his skull, which had pieces of Muspelheim in it, had these little spark from Muspelheim that we know today as the stars and the sun and the moon. It's basically the corpse of a giant, well, giant is what we all call home today. I think that's kind of cool. What do you think of the image itself? Do you think it's a fair representation of Asgard, or um, is it too simple? What do you think? It can be a nice image, but I've always thought it's like an actual tree kind of image. Not almost like a literal tree. It's got Earth in its center, and it kind of extends out into the other eight realms that we all know. It's actually based off of an ash tree, and recently I was kind of like, oh, is this based off of an ash tree specifically? And I looked at the Latin name for it. It's called Praxinus Excelsior, which is Stanley's favorite catchphrase. So I'm like, you know what? That's good. That's fine. Coincidence? Probably not. The official listeners of the Marvel Handbook Podcast are 20th Century Geek Podcast, The 108th Sage, Adriano, Andre 79 Oliveira, Between the Pages, Brian Olvey, Brother Knight, Caroline Wells, Chris at Bat Books for Beginners, Chris Dunford, Christopher Bush, Collected Edition, Debosh, Delvin, Derek William Crabb of Fanhill's Podcast and History of Comics on Film, Doc Strange, Dr. Ant, Dr. G, Nerdologist, Dear Cashton, who tweeted a Seth Meyers thank you gif, Ed Moore, Eric Borden, Fiendish Fitz, FSD Records, Gene Hendricks of The Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, Inari Takeda, Phil's to Nancy, Iowa's Joe Crawford, Jax Webb, Jeffrey Brown tweeted an Ellen Page Kitty Pride gif, Jennifer DeRoss, Carl Ottersberg, Keith G. Baker, Kenny Crowley Jr., Law Dog, RPG Historian, Leather Snipe Bob, Marvel Universe Online, Max Traver, Megasheen, Mike at Send Aliens to Me, Nethead, Odell Abner Dracula, Relatively Geeky, Ryan Daly, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, and Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace Podcast, The 108 Sage wrote, OMF Goddess, an episode with me on it, I knew this day was coming, but I'm still not prepared. Hashtag podcast debut. Eric Borden tweeted, Love it. Keep this going. Chris Dunford tweeted, I had completely forgotten the aerial phase they tried on Kitty. Mike at Send Aliens to me asked, Is that a mustache going up the Alpha Centurion's head? Or does the cartilage from his ears go all the way down to under his nose? Anyway, really enjoying these episodes. Mike, it looks like the former is true. All characters and concepts appearing in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe and the distinct likenesses thereof are the trademark and copyright of Marvel Entertainment, LLC, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company. This has been a not-for-profit fan production from Rolled Spine Podcasts, with any copyrighted materials presented herein presumed covered under fair use, with no infringement intended.